welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 67, the WHO thinks there's a vaccine crisis, and that's good news. My very first post here on Substack formed a three-part series called The Death of Science, and I've linked up part one, part two, and part three in the post accompanying this podcast episode. In part one of the series, I dissected a 2017 document produced by the World Health Organization, the WHO, titled Best Practice Guidance, How to Respond to Vocal Vaccine Deniers in Public. As I wrote in that previous article, which I strongly encourage you to read or reread in full as it's highly relevant as background to this post, quote, this document, which is intended to equip spokespeople of health authorities to deal with vocal vaccine deniers, defined as, quote, individuals who do not accept recommended vaccines, are not open to a change of mind, no matter the scientific evidence, and are actively advocating against vaccination, end quote, is a true masterwork of anti-science doublethink. The authors do not trouble themselves with providing any scientific evidence to support their advocacy for universal uptake of all recommended vaccines, nor do they address the numerous examples of blatant conflicts of interest that plague the process by which novel vaccines become recommended. Instead, they not only rely on the spurious claim of scientific consensus for such advocacy, but strongly advise their target audience, health spokespeople, to do the same. Such spokespeople are explicitly urged to avoid engaging in open scientific debate with those who raise questions about vaccination, but instead to utilise, quote, psychological research on persuasion, end quote, and, quote, training in rhetoric, end quote, including storytelling, expression of moral conviction, gestures and facial expressions, and the use of sound bites to, quote, frame messages, end quote, not to the so-called vocal vaccine denier, but to other members of the audience who may have concerns about vaccination but have not yet taken a firm position on vaccination. With no apparent awareness of their internal contradictions, the authors of this document smear vaccine deniers as having, quote, characteristics that are similar to other types of science deniers and to religious and political fanatics, and that they adhere to a belief that is impossible to challenge, even if challenge is the fundamental tenet of scientific progress, end quote, while also acknowledging that many of these science deniers are, quote, very highly educated individuals who are well aware of the available scientific literature. End of quote. And that excerpt, once again, was from my earlier article, The Death of Science, Part 1. Well, you'll be thrilled to know that the WHO has recently written another handy-dandy guide for public health officials who get paid to gaslight the public. It's titled Vaccine Crisis Communication Manual, Step-by-Step Guidance for National Immunisation Programs, exudes a faint whiff of panic, an impression which grows stronger when one reads the author's definition of vaccine crisis. Quote, this manual defines a vaccine crisis as an event which will most likely or has already eroded public trust in vaccines and or vaccination and the authorities delivering them and may create uncertainty. This requires immediate action and an effective response to curb the negative impact, end quote. Oh, you mean events like record excess mortality in Australia and pretty much every other country that injected a high proportion of its citizens with experimental COVID vaccines? 
Yeah, I guess that runs the risk of eroding public trust. But what is the immediate action and effective response to curb the negative impact that the WHO authors call for? Is it, say, a thorough investigation into the vaccine-related events in which independent scientists, clinicians and pathologists are invited to pour over the medical records and autopsy reports of people who suffered injuries or death after receiving a vaccine? Or a no-holds-barred inquiry into conflicts of interest in vaccine development, policy, procurement and administration? Or maybe it's a panel of independent statisticians, data analysts and demographers convened to do a 360-degree analysis of the impact of each vaccine on health along the lifespan and across communities. Oh, silly me. I thought for a moment that they might have been referring to the negative impact on the people who suffered vaccine-related events. But of course they weren't. The only negative impact that keeps them up at night is the negative impact on the vaccine industrial complex of growing mistrust of the ever-growing array of jabs that public health authorities want to press on every man and his dog. And I mean every man and his dog quite literally. Look up the term One Health on independent media sites such as the Corbett Report, Technocracy News and Global Research. I provided some links in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And you'll quickly see that humans are not the only species being aggressively targeted by the vaccine industrial complex. An ever-growing array of vaccines is being proposed, developed and increasingly mandated for domestic pets, animals used for food production, zoo animals and even wild animals. Now, as always, I urge you to read the entire WHO document for yourself. I must warn you, though, that you may experience a strong urge to vomit, hurl objects at the wall, or yell obscenities. So you might want to brew a calming cup of chamomile tea first. Here are some of the key points that jumped out at me. Point number one, adverse events following immunizations are never, ever, ever caused by vaccines, ever. The authors of the document were at pains to point out that adverse events following immunisation, that's AEFI, are not necessarily causally related to vaccination. In fact, in a 32-page document, I counted nine variations on the theme of just because something bad happens after a person gets a vaccine doesn't mean the vaccine caused it. Let me know if I missed any when you read the document. Here's my list. On page 1V in the glossary, first, an adverse event following immunisation is defined as, quote, any untoward medical occurrence which follows immunisation and which does not necessarily have a causal relationship with the usage of the vaccine, end quote. In the definition of vaccine crisis, the authors are at pains to stress that, quote, vaccine-related events may or may not be directly caused by vaccines or vaccination itself, end quote. In the definition of vaccine-related event, they again stress that, quote, vaccine-related events may or may not be directly caused by vaccines or vaccination itself, end quote. On page one, while listing, quote, events that have the potential to erode trust in vaccines and or vaccination and the authorities delivering them, end quote, they include, quote, any untoward medical occurrence which follows immunization and which does not necessarily have a causal relationship with the usage of the vaccine, end quote. On page 7, in listing types of vaccine-related event, the authors include, quote, AEFI, which are, in parentheses, rightly or wrongly, being associated with vaccines or vaccination, and which may create uncertainty or distrust among the public, end quote. On page 8, while giving instructions on how to gather information to understand the vaccine-related event, they advise asking, quote, which vaccine is being, again, in parentheses, rightly or wrongly, linked to the event, end quote. On page 9, an example of vaccine-related events with, quote, high potential impact is, quote, death following vaccination, and then in parentheses, pending investigation, end quote. 
On page 13, describing communication strategies, the following example scenario is given, quote, an infant has died of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, within 24 hours after having been immunised at a local health centre. Preliminary evidence indicates no causal link between the death and the vaccine, end quote. And finally, on page 15, another scenario was given, a girl with a, quote, serious underlying condition, end quote, has died after receiving an HPV vaccine, but, quote, preliminary findings suggest that there is no causal relation between the death and the vaccine, end quote. In other words, it is taken as a given by the WHO team that their readers will never have to deal with a serious AEFI that was actually caused by any vaccine that has been approved by WHO itself or any government instrumentality. So the correct response of the, quote, vaccine crisis coordination group, end quote, is always to hose down the public's concerns and reassure them that all vaccines are safe and effective. It follows from this that, point number two, because AEFIs are never caused by vaccines, there is no need to improve pharmacovigilance systems. In fact, there's barely any need to even mention that they exist. Pharmacovigilance mechanisms such as VAERS, the Yellow Card System, and in Australia, DAIN, the Database of Adverse Events Notifications, were set up to collect reports from medical practitioners and the general public on all events that take place after administration of a vaccine or other pharmaceutical product, so that safety signals can be promptly detected and thoroughly investigated to either establish or rule out a causal relationship. It is not up to the reporting individual to decide whether the adverse event was causally related or was merely a coincidence. However, when a new pharmaceutical product has been introduced into a population, the precautionary principle applies, or should apply, all adverse events that take place after administration of the product should be assumed to be causally related until proven otherwise. In a sane world with good governance practices, proven otherwise doesn't mean asking the company that made the product whether they reckon their drug or vaccine done it and then taking their word for it. It also doesn't mean asking a panel of your buddies with a viper's nest of conflicts of interest with a vaccine industrial complex whether a causal relationship exists between adverse events and vaccines. But that's how the vaccine safety system works in Australia and overseas, which is why we can have safety signals such as those that all of these systems have been throwing off for the past two years plus and still have the products linked to these adverse events not just available to the public but aggressively pushed on them. Yet there is only one mention of pharmacovigilance or AEFI systems in the text of the WHO document. It's on page 8, by the way, blink and you'll miss it. And this is in the context of preparing for vaccine crises, as in how to do damage control once the excrement has already hit the oscillator, not how to improve the function of such systems in order to enhance public safety. Again, the implicit assumption underlying this document is that all approved vaccines are safe and effective, so members of a vaccine crisis coordination group will never, ever be faced with a situation in which an AEFI was actually caused by a vaccine. Therefore, there's little need for them to familiarise themselves with their jurisdiction's pharmacovigilance mechanism if it even has one, let alone to advocate for improvements in its function or in the analysis of reports made to it. Instead, point number three, the sole task of a vaccine crisis coordination group is to persuade the public to shut up and take all their damn vaccines already. Oops, I mean, to build the public's trust in vaccines. Remember, dummies, vaccines are always safe and effective. Otherwise, the government wouldn't let those completely trustworthy big pharma companies sell them 
Well, aside from the Qatar incident, the 1976 swine flu vaccine fiasco, the Rotashield rotavirus vaccine debacle, and the 2009 pandemic's vaccine disaster, just to name a few of the incidents in which vaccines were acknowledged by authorities to be causing an unacceptable level of harm and were drawn from the market. So if you're a right-thinking member of a vaccine crisis coordination group, your sole mission in life is to persuade the public to trust in the safety and effectiveness of vaccines. The word trust, or its antonym, distrust, appears no less than 34 times in the document. If trust were the trigger word in a drinking game, you'd be blind motherless drunk before you got halfway through reading it. I've included some sample screenshots from the document in the post accompanying this podcast episode, just to give you a hint of how central the notion of trust is to this entire enterprise. Take a look at these screenshots and you'll see how peppered with the word trust these pages are. Now, is it just me, or does anyone else feel mildly suspicious about a bunch of WHO flunkies schooling a bunch of government flunkies in how to sweet-talk the public into trusting them and the liability-free big pharma products they're peddling? Just trust me, would I lie to you? You know what might help in rebuilding, quote, the public's trust in immunisation and the authorities delivering them, end of quote? That is a direct quote from the document. I guess they didn't run it through grammar check. What might help in rebuilding the public's trust is a thorough and transparent investigation of each and every serious AEFI by regulators, including Australia's Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, and full disclosure of the results of these investigations to the public, as opposed to, for instance, TGA suppressing publication of its own causality assessments concluding that COVID vaccines directly led to the deaths of four young Australians, including two minor children, and I've linked up the article describing the TGA's actions in the post accompanying this podcast episode. By the way, want to know TGA's justification for lying to the public about how many Australians have been killed by COVID jabs? It's a corker. Quote, the decision maker determined that disclosure of the documents could undermine public confidence and reduce the willingness of the public to report adverse events to the TGA. End quote. Now, you can bet your bottom dollar that public confidence would be undermined if they found out that COVID jabs killed two kids and two young adults with their whole lives ahead of them and who had a statistically zero chance of suffering serious illness or death related to COVID-19. As for how the publicising of these deaths would reduce the public's willingness to report adverse events, if you can make sense of this complete non sequitur, I'd love to hear from you. I'm sure the government would too. I hear they have plenty of lucrative taxpayer-funded job opportunities for talented bullcrap artists. Speaking of spending public money, point number four, members of vaccine crisis coordination groups should constantly be snooping on the public to find out what they think of vaccines. If you've already played the trust drinking game with this document, for God's sake don't play it again with monitor or you'll end up with acute liver injury. You'll find no fewer than 38 mentions of this creepy word in the 32-page document. Once again, I've included some screenshots from the document just to show you how thickly they lay it on. There are suggestions for monitoring public opinion through something called social listening, as well as social media monitoring. So yeah, great, they're reading my Facebook posts and gathering information from a public information hotline or chatbot. Excellent, I just can't wait to have a discussion with ChatGPT on vaccines. What the WHO wants is a whole lot of monitoring going on. Can you imagine any government agency spending this much time and effort and money to track what people think of any other medical product? 
Why doesn't the WHO advise governments to monitor public opinion about antibiotics, given their acknowledgement of the rapidly accelerating antibiotic resistance crisis, which is already killing close to 100,000 Americans per year? Meanwhile, there was a total of just 13 deaths from measles between 1999 and 2020, according to the CDC Wonder database. What's so bloody special about vaccines that warrants this extraordinary degree of government intrusion into the lives and even the minds of citizens? A paranoid conspiracy theorist might conjecture that this obsession with vaccines has something to do with an extraordinary sentence penned by British philosopher Bertrand Russell in his 1959 book, The Impact of Science on Society, namely this one. Quote, diet, injections and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible, end quote. This sentence is often cited in isolation, but I'm going to quote it in its full context. Here it is once again from the book, The Impact of Science on Society. Quote, scientific societies are as yet in their infancy it may be worthwhile to spend a few moments in speculating as to possible future developments of those that are oligarchies. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. Fichte, that's Johann Gottlieb Fichte, the architect of the Prussian education system on which the US and our own factory model schooling system was modelled, so Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. But in his day, this was an unattainable ideal. What he regarded as the best system in existence produced Karl Marx. In future, such failures are not likely to occur where there is dictatorship. Diet, injections and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Even if all are miserable, all will believe themselves happy because the government will tell them that they are so, end quote. In the oligarchic scientific society of Russell's nightmares, you'll own nothing, take all your jabs and be happy. Yet there's some good news concealed within this tawdry WHO propaganda piece, namely, number five, the WHO is really scared of people and organisations that ask questions about the safety and efficacy of vaccines. If we were already in Bertrand Russell's oligarchic scientific society, there would be no need for all this monitoring and trust building. The WHO wouldn't have to urge governments to allocate budgets for vaccine crisis coordination groups, and the members of such groups wouldn't have to spend their days combing through random social media posts and their nights fretting over the threat of, quote, a baseless accusation made by a powerful anti-vaccination group suddenly gaining widespread attention. End quote. Yes, that is a genuine quote from this document. It's on page seven, and I've screenshotted it in the post accompanying this podcast episode, just in case you don't believe me. At first blush, the phrase powerful anti-vaccination group is patently absurd. The vast majority of vaccine risk awareness groups are founded by the parents of vaccine-injured children, the more accurately described as ex-vaccinators than anti-vaccinators, and they run on the smell of an oily rag, relying on volunteers and small bickies donations from the public. 
In stark contrast, the global vaccine market was worth a cool US $141 billion in 2021, while governments have unfettered access to taxpayers' money to purchase celebrity endorsements and favourable media coverage of vaccines in order to persuade their tax cattle to line up for their shots. And yet, the vaccine industrial complex Goliath lives in such terror of the stones hurled at it by anti-vax David that it devotes considerable resources to developing strategies to deflect them. Why? Because Goliath needs our consent. Rounding up non-compliers and force vaccinating them at gunpoint is, perhaps, technically feasible, but it's costly in both financial and trust capital. Nation-states that claim to operate on democratic principles must use soft power to achieve domestic policy objectives or risk electoral backlash. And that means that we, the people, hold more power than we realise. Peaceful, mass non-compliance with the immoral, illogical and unscientific edicts that governments have issued over the past three years, including mask mandates, physical distancing rules, business closures, limits on funeral and wedding attendance, shutting out visitors from nursing homes and the bedsides of dying people, and, of course, mandates to take an experimental vaccine that was never tested on its ability to stop transmission. Peaceful mass non-compliance with all of these would have not just led to the end of the diktats themselves, but to the governments issuing them. There simply wouldn't be enough police to issue tickets or courts to hear contested fines or prison cells to lock the non-compliers up if thousands of people and businesses in every suburban town across this country had just declared, freedom, I won't. And for those not familiar, that's a line from Eric Frank Russell's short story, And Then There Were None. There's a link to that in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And I'm begging and pleading with you, please just take a few minutes out of your busy day and read this short story before you go to bed tonight. Now, if after thorough evaluation of the evidence, you decide that a particular vaccine or any other pharmaceutical product is not the best option for you, your child or your pet, you can just say no. There may be consequences to your choice. You may have to get a different job or make alternative arrangements for the care and education of your child or find a new vet. However, the consequences of complying either against your better judgment or because you have simply outsourced your decision making to experts may also be serious. Just ask all the parents of vaccine injured children or the people who submitted to COVID jabs to keep their jobs but are now too disabled to work. I have several clients in this position. And when your government has become so merged with the vaccine industrial complex that it is no longer possible to discern where one ends and the other begins, it is no longer worthy of your consent and you have a moral duty to become ungovernable. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.